Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The end is nigh. It's common for certain religion, religious groups to predict the end of the world. If you remember last week's sermon, which I'm sure you do vividly, uh, we talked at the beginning about the Seekers, which were one of the first UFO cults in the United States. They had predicted the end of the world that would come about on December 21st of 1954. And then the, after that didn't come true, they predicted it would be December 24th of 1954. But of course, no UFO, no natural disaster came. You might remember back in 2012, the big talk of that year was that the Aztecs had predicted the end of the world because their calendar ran out. I remember staying up late on New Year's Eve wondering uh, if the Aztecs were right, and I assume they're not since we're all still here. Christians, of course, aren't immune from making these sorts of predictions either. Uh, Various denominations have been formed around false predictions. Uh, You might remember the name Harold Camping. Uh, He first predicted the end of the world in September 6, 1994. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, So he revised his prediction to say May 21st, 2011. And when that didn't happen again, he revised to October 21st, 2011. And then he finally learned maybe it's not a great idea to make predictions about the end of the world. Pat Robertson of 700 Club fame has also predicted the end of the world. He predicted that it would happen in the fall of 1982. What these predictors often miss are the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 36, where he says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. It's probable that people feel drawn to these predictions because we want to have a sense of control. It's a lot easier uh, and more tangible and perhaps even more comfortable for us to latch on to the words of false prophets who make specific predictions rather than resting in Jesus' somewhat open-ended promise that he will come again. So while we shouldn't get caught up with these kind of specific predictions, Ascension Tide really is the perfect time for us to meditate on the fact that Christ is coming again. And this is a fact that St. Peter has us remember at the very beginning of the reading. He effectively says that the end is nigh. Now, the ascension of Christ marks a mission accomplished in terms of his first coming. He became incarnate. He lived a life of perfect adoration to the Father. He died for our sins. He was vindicated by the Father in the resurrection. And he established the church by giving his apostles the authority to forgive and retain sins. The ascension then marks an end to the first coming, which means that we are now to look forward to the second coming. As the early Christians would say, we're living in the last days. And the first Christians understood that their task was to live with anticipation of the second coming. In fact, if you read in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul actually urges Christians not to get married because he's afraid it will distract them from the impending coming of Christ. But it raises the question, if the end is nigh, if Christ could return at any moment, how does that change what you do right now? Because the truth is the end is nigh. Christ has come for his first first coming, but it means that the next step in salvation history is his second coming, in which he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, the end always brings significance to the present. If your goal is to be a professional athlete, 
then you'll dedicate your present to all sorts of strenuous and arduous training. If you want to be a successful Jeopardy contestant, then you'll dedicate your present to learning all sorts of arcane trivia. If your goal is to be a good spouse, then you'll dedicate your present to loving your spouse that you're married to. The Christian life is similar. It has to be lived with the end in view. We know that Christ will return, but we don't know when. And this can produce in us two different kinds of reactions. It's easy sometimes to use Christ's delay as an excuse. Well, if he hasn't come yet, then I should be able to do whatever it is that I want. I can enjoy the present by giving in to hedonistic impulses. I've heard more than one testimony, having been raised Baptist, of people who, will, uh, who would say, well, I, I decided uh, in college to go crazy for a few years because I knew once I got married after college, I would get it together. They would use that delay as, a, as an excuse. But the more optimal decision is to use this delay in Christ's return as an opportunity and incentive for the pursuit of holiness. And it's this option that St. Peter pushes us towards in our epistle reading so that we should ask the question in light of Christ's impending return, how should we then live? And for Peter, he means three things. It means living soberly, it means living in prayer, and it means living with charity. So the first one, be ye therefore sober, or as the RSV says, keep sane. The Greek word there doesn't mean necessarily to refrain from drinking altogether, but rather to be in the right mind or to be sensible. So the idea is that we are to act reasonably in light of what is coming. If it's true that Christ will return, then we must be sober. We must keep an eye not so much on the signs of the times like those who make the predictions about the end of the world, but rather we should look inwards at our own souls. What's fitting for us to do right now? How do we need to get ready for his coming? This is what it means to live soberly and watchfully. In combination with this sober living, Peter commends a life of prayer as the proper response to the fact that Christ is coming again. Prayer is the elevation of the mind to God. And it's very easy to relegate prayer as some sort of special responsibility of the clergy or monastics, people who give their whole lives to prayer. And there is some truth in that insofar as priests and monastics have a special responsibility to pray for their people. And you can be sure that I pray for you by name regularly. But prayer is not reserved exclusively to the clergy. It's actually a responsibility of the whole of Christ's church, which includes you as well. And why is prayer so important? Because when we pray, we spend time with the one that we love. We spend time conforming our will to his will. That's really the model Christian prayer, isn't it? Thy will be done. And so it's appropriate, knowing that he will return to judge us, that we should devote ourselves to prayer so that we won't be found wanting. Now, the final thing that St. Peter commends to us is charity or love, depending on the translation that you're reading. Now, I would argue there's no such thing as private prayer, that all of our prayer is always happening in the company of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. That said, prayer is generally a more inward-facing activity. Charity, or love, by definition, is outward-facing. But prayer and charity are intricately connected. We cannot be people who pray well if we don't love well. 
But similarly, we cannot be a people who love well if we don't pray well. And you might notice a resonance there with the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't have either of those two without the other. And so we are called to love. Now, oftentimes when people talk about love, they mean warm, fuzzy feelings or, or really just ambiguous directives, right? Most people, I think, want a practical application. So if I say, you should love each other, you should say, what does that mean? And Peter gives us that today in the reading. Love, when it's active, looks like hospitality, which is to genuinely receive the other without grudging. Hospitality itself, of course, isn't always uniquely Christian. You can find non-Christians who are hospitable, but Christians are hospitable for two unique reasons. The first is because we recognize that God has shown us hospitality in calling us sons. He saved us through his incarnation and his passion. One could argue that's the most hospitable act ever committed. But also we recognize that anyone who is in need of hospitality is a divine image bearer. So St. John Chrysostom, a saint who lived in the five to six hundreds, reminds us that if you receive your neighbor as though he were Christ, You will not complain or feel embarrassed, but rather rejoice in your service. But if you do not receive him as if he were Christ, then you will not receive Christ either. So Peter contextualizes this call to hospitality to the body of Christ. Just like St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, Peter recognizes that our charity and hospitality can express themselves through particular gifts that were given by the Holy Spirit. So St. Peter says that we should minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so he gives us two examples of what that might look like. So he says as, uh, if a speaker speaks, then he should use God's words. In other words, the speaker speaking to the body of Christ must preach the gospel for the good of the church. Another gift that Peter isolates is that of serving or ministering to others, which we should do in the particular way and with the strength that God gives us. But the point isn't really the gifts themselves so much as the undergirding principle, which is that whatever gift we have, the purpose is to serve the mission of the church, which St. Peter defines as in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so love is a constant characteristic that should bind us as the church together. But the beauty is that in the body of Christ, love is demonstrated in a plethora of diverse ways, which is a sign. It's a sign that the Holy Ghost is here with his church, whose coming we celebrate next Sunday on Pentecost. So love means using the gifts of the Spirit for the good of the body. Now, many of you here at St. Paul's do so much with your gifts for our community. I'm thinking of our vestry, our wardens, our choir, our music director, our altar guild, our missions committee, those who coordinate and participate in coffee hour, and all the other countless people who contribute to our common life. And so if you're one of those people, I think today is a good day for us as the church to say, thank you for what you do. And it's also a good opportunity for you to remember why what you do is so important. Now, if you're someone 
who has been here for a little while and maybe haven't jumped in yet, you're still sort of on the periphery, or if you're new but wanting to get involved, then I think today is a good day to pray for discernment so that you can know how the Holy Ghost has gifted you and how you might be able to use those gifts to contribute to our common life. Oh, and also, you can come talk to me, and I'm happy to help direct you in this regard. But our goal is expressed well, I think, in the doxology at the end of our reading today, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.